Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. A reported deal to avert a partial federal government shutdown this Friday. We'll have details in a moment. Senator Mitch McConnell says he's going to step down as the Senate Republican leader after the November elections, ending 18 years as leader, longest in U.S. Senate history. We'll talk to Axios political reporter Eugene Scott about Senator McConnell's legacy and the future of the Republican Party without him in a leadership position. Hunter Biden telling House committee members in a closed-door deposition in the impeachment inquiry of President Biden, I did not involve my father in my business, and he said you do not have evidence to support the baseless and MAGA-motivated conspiracies about my father because there isn't any. President Biden gets a physical exam telling reporters after that everything is great and joking that they think I look too young. The White House Press Secretary, Queen Jean-Pierre, is asked whether there was a mental competency test as part of the physical. The Supreme Court hears oral argument in a case about whether the ATF has the authority to ban bump stocks, the devices that make semi-automatic rifles fire as fast as fully automatics. Headlines using the words like the justice wrestling, grappling, or torn over how to decide this issue. And the Bureau of Prisons Director, Colette Peters, testifies about chronic staffing shortages after a report on the rise of prisoner deaths. Now an update on government funding. This from Politico. Congressional leaders struck a government funding deal Wednesday on half a dozen annual spending bills alongside a stopgap that pushes two shutdown deadlines later into March, according to a senior leadership aide. Top lawmakers closed out negotiations on the Agriculture FDA, Energy Water, Military Construction VA, Transportation HUD, Interior Environment, and Commerce Justice Science bills, assigning all of those a deadline of March 8th. Leaders hope to release text by this weekend and clear the spending bills next week, funding those agencies through September. The rest of the fiscal 2024 measures, including more contentious bills that would fund the Pentagon, Department of Homeland Security, and Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services and Education, will get a new deadline of March 22nd. Again, the Politico article goes on both chambers, only have a couple of days to pass the stopgap before a partial government shutdown kicks in on Saturday. And there's still a few hiccups on that point. Speaker Mike Johnson will almost certainly need help from Democrats to pass the measure in the House. And all Republican senators will have to agree to speed up debate to move the stopgap through the upper chamber before the March 1st deadline. And now to Senator Mitch McConnell. According to Associated Press, the longest serving Senate leader in history, maintained his power in the face of dramatic convulsions in the Republican Party for almost two decades, stepping down from that position in November. Senator McConnell made the announcement on the Senate floor. My goals when I was narrowly elected to the Senate back in 1984 were fairly modest. Do a good job for the people of Kentucky and convince them that by doing so, they might rehire me for a second term. That was it. That was the plan. If you would have told me 40 years later that I would stand before you as the longest serving Senate leader in American history, frankly, I would have thought you'd lost your mind. I have the honor of representing Kentucky and the Senate longer than anyone else in our state's history. I just never could have imagined, never could have imagined that happening. When I arrived here in 1984, at 42. I'm filled 
with heartfelt gratitude and humility for the opportunity. But now it's 2024. I'm now 82. As Ecclesiastes tells us, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. To serve Kentucky in the Senate has been the honor of my life. To lead my Republican colleagues has been the highest privilege. But one of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. So I stand before you today, Mr. President, and my colleagues to say this will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. However, I'll complete my job my colleagues have given me until we select a new leader in November and they take the helm next January. I'll finish the job the people of Kentucky hired me to do as well, albeit from a different seat. And I'm actually looking forward to that. So it's time for me to think about another season. I love the Senate. It's been my life. There may be more distinguished members of this body throughout our history, but I doubt there were any with any more admiration for the Senate. After all this time, I still got a thrill walking into the Capitol, and especially on this venerable floor, knowing that we, each of us, have the honor to represent our states and do the important work of our country. But Father, time remains undefeated. I'm no longer the young man sitting in the back hoping colleagues would remember my name. It's time for the next generation of leadership. With a closer look at Senator McConnell's announcement that he will not seek another term as the Senate Republican leader after the November elections, joining us on the phone is Eugene Scott, senior politics reporter for Axios. Thanks for being with us. Phrases like end of an era are being used. What is Senator McConnell's legacy? Yeah, thanks for having me. And one of the first things that comes to mind when I think about Mitch McConnell is his uh, ability to reshape or at least block the reshaping of the judiciary um, when it comes to making sure uh, as few liberal judges get on some of the most influential courts uh, in the land uh, and paving the way and making the path clear for as many conservative judges to get on the bench as possible. And what does the transition to a new leader mean for the Republican Party? Well, I mean, I think it means that the Senate could possibly find itself looking much more like the House. Uh, McConnell was arguably one of the more uh, traditional Republicans left in the Senate. Uh, He is not a consistent favorite at all of the former president, Donald Trump. Uh, And we've seen the House become uh, more filled uh, with 
you know, MAGA loyalists, and that's even creeping into uh, the Senate, even in leadership within the Senate. And so uh, I think what we could see is the next GOP leader in the Senate being someone who has a much more positive relationship with the former president, Mitt McConnell. Did Senator McConnell give any specific reasons for announcing this today? Well, uh, he was pretty general in terms of uh, knowing when to begin uh, new chapters. And, you know, the reality is McConnell has had some very public health challenges. Um, He has had some very recent uh, family deaths. He's had some consistent uh, battles with other GOP leaders uh, beyond Donald Trump regarding uh, the vision and direction of the party. And so I think for him, all of these are signs uh, that he perhaps is no longer the best person to be the leader of the GOP in the upper chamber of Congress. He didn't say, though, that he was going to be leaving the Senate. His term goes on for another couple of years. I'm thinking it's rare in the modern era for somebody to step down as leader but stay on in the Senate. It is. But I mean, you know, who else did that very recently? Nancy Pelosi, not in the Senate, should we say. But I think he is uh, not tired of serving uh, and wants to continue uh, influencing uh, his his or should I say representing his constituents, maybe influencing the party to some degree, but no longer wants to be the chief influencer. And uh, I think this allows him to continue to do that without being the point person. The election for a new Republican leader in the Senate won't take place until after the November election. But who is potentially in the running? Well, certainly John Thune, uh, McConnell's number two. Uh, But I think what will be interesting is uh, all of this depends on the outcome of the elections and and who uh, in the Senate uh, stays in the Senate. You have individuals like J.D. Vance and Tim Scott who are... uh, Republican supporters of Donald Trump, who may want to move out of the Senate uh, if Trump wins uh, in November. But if uh, he doesn't, or even if he does, and they want to stay in the Senate, they could be easily great point people for Donald Trump um, in terms of making sure that the Senate makes decisions that are consistent with the former president's uh, political ideology. Eugene Scott is senior politics reporter at Axios. You can find his stories at Axios.com and on X at Eugene underscore Scott. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And Senator John Thune, Republican from South Dakota, the current whip, putting out a written statement. For decades, he's been a fierce defender of the Senate, our conference, and our party, and we're all better for his service. Mitch leaves enormous shoes to fill, and it's with humility that I look forward to having a discussion with my colleagues about what the future holds for the Senate Republican Conference and a new generation of leadership. Until then, thank you, Mitch. Senator McConnell has been the Senate Republican Conference leader since 2007. It was in January 2023 that he became the longest-serving party leader in Senate history, passing the late Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield, Democrat of Montana. Senator Susan Collins, Republican of Maine, spoke right after Senator McConnell on the Senate floor today. Mr. President, I just want to very briefly recognize my good friend, the Republican leader, for his extraordinary service, not only to our caucus, but more important to the Senate as an institution 
and to our country. His tenure as leader will be remembered not just for its historic longevity, but also for his unparalleled devotion to this great institution, which he has always defended. I also admired the leader for stepping forward when it wasn't popular to do the right thing for our country and for our world. There will be plenty of time for all of us to honor him in more detail as time goes on. But I felt compelled to speak today to thank him, to thank him for devoting his life to public service for all the right reasons, to improve the lives of the people living in our great country. Senator Susan Collins, Republican from Maine on the Senate floor. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, putting out a statement. During my years in the Senate, Mitch McConnell and I rarely saw eye to eye when it came to our politics or our policy preferences. But I am very proud that we both came together in the last few years to lead the Senate forward at critical moments when our country needed us, like passing the CARES Act in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, finishing our work to certify the election on January 6th, and more recently working together to fund the fight for Ukraine. I know it's been a difficult year for him and his family, and I wish him the very best. And President Joe Biden with a statement American democracy is based on elected representatives coming together and bridging their different points of view to find common ground on behalf of the American people. I'm proud that my friend Mitch McConnell and I have been able to do that for many years, working together in good faith, even though we have many political disagreements. During his many years of leadership, we could always speak with each other honestly and put the country ahead of ourselves. And the House Freedom Caucus posting on X, our thoughts are with our Democrat colleagues in the Senate on the retirement of their co-majority leader, Mitch McConnell, Democrat from Ukraine. No need to wait till November. Senate Republicans should immediately elect a Republican minority leader. Freedom Caucus member Chip Roy of Texas was interviewed on Fox Business Channel as the announcement was coming out that Senator Mitch McConnell will be stepping down from the Republican leadership position after the November elections. I spent some time in the Senate as chief of staff to Ted Cruz as a lawyer on the Senate Judiciary Committee for John Cornyn. Uh, so I know the Senate very well. Uh, and, you know, like, I, you know, when, when someone's announcing their retirement, you want to wish them well. You spent a lifetime in public service. I've had some strong disagreements uh, with the Republican leader in the Senate, uh, even just yesterday, going down to the White House and telling uh, Mike Johnson, the, the Speaker of the House, that he needs to stop worrying about the border. Uh, and just focus on Ukraine and focus on foreign aid. I mean, there are a lot of differences of opinion I've had with what I would call the uniparty in this town. You know that, and we've talked about it. And I think Mitch McConnell yeah. kind of represented that. Give him credit where credit is due, pushing back on Merrick Garland, buying time for us to try to make sure that we got someone there. I mean, as you've seen Merrick Garland unfolding at the Department of Justice, he would have been an epic disaster at the United States Supreme Court. So I'm grateful that we've been able to, you know, we were able to give President Trump the ability to put someone in there that needed to be in the on the court. But, but at the end of the day, um, I, I think it's time for us to move on. Uh, I think we need to be moving on beyond uh, octogenarians who've been screwing up this country for as long as I can remember. Congressman Chip Roy, Republican from Texas, on Fox Business Channel today. This is Washington Today.
NBC News reports during a long-awaited closed-door deposition on Capitol Hill Wednesday, Hunter Biden disputed claims by House Republicans that President Joe Biden was involved in his son's business dealings. The deposition was conducted by the House Oversight Committee and the House Judiciary Committee, two GOP-controlled panels that have been leading an impeachment inquiry into the president. Hunter Biden said in his prepared opening statement, I am here today to provide the committees with one uncontestable fact that should end the false premise of this inquiry. I did not involve my father in my business, not while I was a practicing lawyer, not in my investments or transactions, domestic or international, not as a board member and not as an artist. Never. For more than a year, your committees have hunted me in your partisan political pursuit of my dad. You have trafficked in innuendo, distortion, and sensationalism, all the while ignoring the clear and convincing evidence staring you in the face. You do not have evidence to support the baseless and MAGA-motivated conspiracies about my father because there isn't any. That was the opening statement from Hunter Biden, as it was reported by NBC News, because this was a closed-door deposition but the statement was released to the press. Outside the room where the deposition was taking place, some members of Congress stopped by to speak publicly with reporters. Here is Matt Gates, Republican of Florida. I'd say that there were a number of interesting moments, but perhaps none more interesting than when Hunter Biden told us that he uh, joined the Burisma board to counter Russian aggression. I hadn't heard that one before, that thank goodness we had Hunter Biden on the Burisma board uh, because that was uh, central to his strategy to stand up to Vladimir Putin. Has he so, taken the fifth at all? No. He's, has, answer, he's, he's, he's been responsive to questions. Has yeah. he told you exactly what value he brought to any of these wars, any of these companies yet? Have you guys asked him that? Yeah, we've asked those questions, and there is, there is an illusory value. It is a mirage to believe that Hunter Biden was engaged in international business. This was uh, a bribe masquerading as an international business transaction. Nothing more, nothing less. Can we just quickly ask you... Do you still feel the impeachment inquiry is heading in a direction where you'll actually be able to vote on articles of impeachment? Well, here we're asking questions about these corrupt business practices. Uh, I'm, not really, I'm not really framing that through the lens of next steps. I'm just trying to get the facts. Biden wrote that he joined the board to support Russia in his book. Why don't you I have to say, I thought it was a pretty strange... I thought it was a pretty strange uh, statement. Either perhaps it jumps off the page when he says it in his own words. Do you think that, has he said anything that specifically implicate the president? Have you seen evidence that the president was involved in those business dealings yet? I believe that you can actually bribe someone by paying their family members. Like I, I don't get this construct that unless Joe Biden himself received cash, that he somehow wasn't involved in the bribery operation. Joe Biden was doing the bidding of. Burisma. He was doing the bidding of Chinese communists, and his family was getting enriched as a consequence. To me, that's a pretty strong case for bribery. Congressman Matt Gates, Republican from Florida, with reporters outside the closed deposition with Hunter Biden. Also coming out to speak, Congressman Jamie Raskin, ranking Democrat on the Oversight and Accountability Committee. All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, when we went into today's uh, transcribed interview... Uh, with Hunter Biden. Uh, we had had a dozen witnesses who had told us that uh, Joe Biden was not involved in any way in 
Hunter's business, that he did not profit from Hunter's business, and that he rendered no official favors or benefits to Hunter's business. And nothing that we've heard from Hunter Biden has changed that in any way. In fact, he has emphatically and repeatedly underscored to the Republicans that his father was not involved in any way in his businesses, did not profit from his businesses, and Hunter neither asked him for any official favors nor received any official favors uh, from Joe Biden. So uh, what we saw, I think, was a rather embarrassing spectacle where the Republicans continued to uh, belabor completely trivial points. They uh, seem to be obsessively focused on speaker phones and use of speakerphone. I did not know that that was the devil's technology, but apparently it is. Um, and um, I believe, uh, based on this first hour, that this whole thing really has been a tremendous waste of our legislative time and the people's resources. Jamie Raskin, Democrat from Maryland, ranking member on the Oversight and Accountability Committee, speaking to reporters outside the room where the deposition, the transcribed interview, was taking place. CNN's live blog has this entry. House Republicans are using a bigger room than they typically do for closed-door interviews because there are a number of members expected to attend Hunter Biden's deposition. Typically, depositions are sparsely attended by lawmakers and are led solely by committee staff, but a record number of Democratic and Republican members expected to attend this deposition. From CBS News, President Biden visited Walter Reed National Military Medical Center on Wednesday for his annual physical exam, and the results are sure to be closely watched by the 81-year-old president seeking re-election. Mr. Biden is already the oldest president in U.S. history and will be 86 by the end of a second term should he win one. The president was asked at his next public event that was one dealing with crime prevention, how the physical went, how he was feeling, and whether there's anything that the American public should be concerned about. He said everything's squared away. They think I look too young. Nothing different from last year. Everything is great. It's a little hard to hear, but here's the Q&A. President Biden at the White House being shouted questions. He didn't have a microphone in front of him. The physician to the president, Kevin O'Connor, releasing a summary of the physical exam of the president. And the end of it has this. This patient's current medical considerations are detailed as above and remain stable and well controlled. They include obstructive sleep apnea, AFib with normal ventricular response, hyperlipidemia, gastro esophageal reflux, seasonal allergies, spinal arthritis, and sensory peripheral neuropathy of the feet. For these, he takes three common prescription medications and three common over-the-counter medications. President Biden is a healthy, active, robust 81-year-old male who remains fit to successfully execute the duties of the presidency to include those as chief executive, head of state, and commander-in-chief. The summary from the physician to the president. Earlier in the day, before that summary was released at the White House briefing with the press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, she got a question about the physical exam. Did the president 
president take a mental fitness or cognitive test during his physical this morning? So let me just say I did see Dr. O'Connor, uh, and he, he stopped by my office earlier today uh, after the president completed his physical uh, this morning, as you all know. Uh, he was happy with how everything went. And as soon as he uh, uh, finishes completing the memo, uh, it will be a robust, comprehensive memo. We will certainly share that with all of you, as we have done in the last two years. And uh, look. You saw the president return to work. He took some of your questions uh, not too long ago, and you saw he's going to continue to uh, to fight for the American people. And in this particular instance, he was talking about fighting fighting crime. So the president's going to continue that that process as it relates to. Uh, you were asking me about a cognitive test. As it relates to that, look, um, you know, the president doesn't need a cognitive test. That is not my assessment. That is not my assessment. That is the assessment of the president's doctor. Uh, that is also the assessment of the neurologist, uh, who has also made that assessment as well. And you know, and you've heard us say this, and I'll reiterate this: the president's doctor has says, if you look at what this president, the president who is also the commander in chief, he passes a cognitive test every day, every day, as he moves from one topic to another topic. Try, understanding the granular level of these topics. You saw him talk about uh, fighting crime today. Tomorrow he's going to go to the border. Next week he's going to give a State of the Union address. And so we have to keep that in mind. Uh, this is a very rigorous job. Uh, and uh, the president has been able to do, do this job every day for the past three years. And let's not forget, he is also leading a historic uh, presidency, which is also important to note in everything that we've been able to do. He's been able to get done over the past three years. But given that there's been so much scrutiny and you say there's no problem, he'd pass the test every day, why not just have his doctor administer the test and then case closed? Because the doctor doesn't believe that he, he needs one, because his, including the neurologist doesn't believe he needs one. Look. I think, uh, I think folks need to understand that the president passes, again, a cognitive test every day. If you look at what a clinical cognitive test is actually, what it actually does, it is a 15-minute appointment that is, that is administered by someone that m most of the time people don't actually know. And, and, uh, and the president has a team of doctors that is with him 24-7, and he is able to do the work uh, every day. Uh, that is rigorous, that is more rigorous than it would be for any 15-minute clinical, uh, clinical appointment. And you think about the job growth, you think about the record small business action, you think about the bloom in that, in that particular space of 16 million more small businesses have been pre created. You think about delivering historic investment. That has been done by a president who has to deal with these issues every day, again, on a granular level. And, uh, and so his doctor, including the neurologist, do, do not believe that he needs one. That is their assessment. The White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre during her news conference today at the White House. In Tuesday's Michigan presidential primary, President Biden won with 81 percent of the vote. 13 percent went to uncommitted. It was part of an organized protest that included Congresswoman and Palestinian-American Rashida Tlaib, Democrat from Michigan, against the president's handling of the war between Israel and Hamas. On the Republican side, Donald Trump got 68 percent against Nikki Haley's 27 percent. We spoke this morning with Frank Luntz, pollster and communications strategist. Three things that stand out to me. Number one is that there's no hesitation, no doubt whatsoever, that it's going to be Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. Uh, any, any thought of someone coming in late, it's just not going to happen. Second is that there is discontent on both sides that the fact that Haley, Nikki Haley, the governor of South Carolina, does not have a chance 
of taking the nomination, and yet she's still getting a sizable vote. And on the Democratic side, the fact that more than 100,000 people voted uncommitted as a way to express their displeasure with Joe Biden is significant. The typical undeclared vote is about 20,000 in Michigan. When you get five times the number, I'm paying attention. And third, that the turnout was high. And I really do think that we're going to set yet another record for turnout in 2024 as Americans want to have their voices heard. Who, who should be more concerned here in what they saw in their column last night? Uh, Joe Biden with 100,000 uncommitted or Donald Trump looking at Nikki Haley's almost 300,000 votes that she gained, even though he won by over 40 percent? Uh, they both should be. And, and I never duck a question. I'll explain why. Union voters, union households are moving Republican in literally record numbers. And that's going to be important in a state like Michigan. Latino voters, Hispanic voters are doing the same. And it's possible that a Republican could get 45, even approaching 50 percent of the Latino vote. Now, on the Democratic side, suburban voters in particularly women, particularly upper middle class that normally vote Republican don't like Donald Trump. And they are moving towards the Democrats, towards Joe Biden. So we've got this shifting that's going on that is very significant. It's happening in all these swing states. And quite frankly, to give you voters, to give you viewers an idea of just how few votes are going to determine this election, there are only nine states that are truly up for grabs and only about 5% of the electorate that's shifting back and forth. When you combine those two, we are about to spend billions of dollars in negative advertising for only 2% of Americans. And frankly, I'm, I'm very concerned about the consequences of that. Frank Lund's pollster and communication strategist on C-SPAN's Washington Journal program this morning. You can find the full discussion with them archived at our video library, cspan.org. Marianne Williamson, who suspended her campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination three weeks ago, today posting a video on X saying she's back in the race. She says because Donald Trump is the front runner for the Republican presidential nomination. As of today, I am unsuspending my campaign for the presidency of the United States. I had suspended it because I was losing the horse race. But something so much more important than the horse race is at stake here. And we must respond. Right now, we have a fascist standing at the door. Everybody's all upset about it. Well, we should be upset about it. But we're not going to defeat the fascist by, well, by what? What is President Biden offering? He says, let's finish the job. Well, I hope you realize we're talking about millions of voters for whom they can't even survive unless they work at two or three jobs. What is he saying beyond, you know, the economy is really doing well. Are you kidding me? For whom? It's doing well for 20% of us, and that's to be celebrated. But that 20% is on an island surrounded by a vast sea of economic despair. 39% of the American people report that they are regularly skipping meals in order to pay their rent. Over half of bankruptcies come from medical debt one in four Americans carry. We're now living at a time where economic anxiety is experienced by the majority of people, the majority of people living paycheck to paycheck, the minimum wage not having been raised, and increased and increasing militarism. What's going on here? Well, I'll tell you what's going on here. We the people basically don't own this country right now. Democratic presidential candidate Marianne Williamson in a video posted on X today. She got 3% of the vote in Tuesday's primary election 
in Michigan. That was more than Congressman Dean Phillips, Democrat of Minnesota, who got 2.7 percent of the vote in the presidential race. Washington Today continues in a moment. Hi, it's Nate from C-SPAN. Imagine, 45 years ago when there were just a handful of television networks, C-SPAN first went on the air, bringing an unfiltered view of government directly to America's living rooms. No spin, no commentary, just pure democracy in action. And it's Shannon from C-SPAN. It was a bold experiment. We finally had a front row seat to Congress, the White House, and the campaign trail, all without government funding. As we celebrate 45 years and a legacy of unfiltered access, we ask for your support of a donation in honor of over four decades of service. Your gift, no matter how big or small, will help maintain this vital resource for access to the democratic process. You can help ensure another 45 years of witnessing history unfold and empowering citizens to be informed and engaged in the political process. Visit cspan.org slash donate today and join our 45th anniversary campaign. Thank you for supporting C-SPAN, your unfiltered view of government. Visit cspan.org slash donate today to make your gifts of support. Thank you. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast wherever you find your podcasts and on the C-SPAN Now mobile app, which is free. Washington Post reports the Supreme Court will review Donald Trump's unprecedented claim that he is shielded from prosecution for actions taken while in office, further delaying the former president's D.C. trial on charges of conspiring to overturn his 2020 election loss to remain in power. The justice set argument for the week of April 22nd to consider a unanimous ruling from a panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit that rejected Trump's sweeping assertion of immunity from prosecution. Supreme Court heard a case today that deals with firearms. Another story from the Washington Post. Divided court seemed to be struggling with the legality of a federal ban on bump stock devices, which allows semi-automatic rifles to fire hundreds of bullets per minute. Liberal justice suggested devices, which have been used in major mass killings in recent years, were exactly what Congress had in mind when it long ago imposed restrictions on machine guns. Some conservative justice, however, said the language in the federal statute at issue was not so clear. The Trump administration moved to ban bump stocks in 2017 after they were used by a gunman to fire on the crowd at an outdoor music festival in Las Vegas, killing dozens and injuring hundreds more in the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. And that was from the Washington Post. Bump stocks use a gun's recoil to bounce or bump rapidly off a shooter's trigger finger. And the issue before the court is whether that is a single function of the trigger, as the law banning machine guns reads, or it's rapid fire by repeated manual activations of the trigger. Here's some of the oral argument. Justice Amy Coney Barrett questioning U.S. Principal Deputy Solicitor General Brian Fletcher. Intuitively, I am entirely sympathetic to your argument. I mean, and it, and it seems like, yes, this is functioning like a machine gun would. But, you know, looking at that definition, I think the question is, why didn't Congress pass that litigation, I mean, that legislation to, to make this covered more clearly? Um, I think your argument depends on volition, right? So let me give you a hypothetical and then tell me if you think this satisfies the definition of machine gun. Let's imagine someone builds a fully automatic machine gun. And I won't try to come up with the technology for exactly how this is going to happen. But they install a tripwire on their property. And they just leave the gun there unattended, walk away. Somebody trips the wire, and then it begins shooting lots of rounds. Yeah. 
Does that satisfy your definition of a machine gun? I think it does, yes. Why? Because a single act, and you know, I think we've used different words like volition. I think what we're, the idea that we're trying to get at is, does some separate act is that required, some manual act required for each shot, or is a single continuous act resulting in the firing of multiple shots? That's an unusual way to activate a machine gun, obviously, but I right. think even if it's a tripwire, that's still one act by a person that initiates a multi-shot fire. But it's an unintentional act in the same way you might say if your finger, because for the bump stock to work, you still have to have your finger right there, right? You do, yeah. And, and, it, and it, according to the Fifth Circuit, what you're focusing on is the definition, you know, it looked at it from the perspective of the gun and the machinery of the gun, but you still do need your finger there to kind of pull back the trigger the same way that you would if it was volitional. So not quite, actually, Justice Barrett, I think this is important. When, in the typical way that you fire these bump stocks, and this the Fifth Circuit acknowledged at 21A of the petition appendix, you don't initiate firing by pulling backward with your trigger finger. The trigger finger stays completely stationary. Push. You initiate by pushing, and what the expert said and the district court found is you could replace place your trigger finger with a little plastic post attached to the bump stock, and it would work in exactly the same way. So it's, it's true that you have to keep your finger there, and if you moved your finger away, the bump firing sequence would stop, but that's a pretty trivial additional piece of input from the shooter. Really, what's starting and continuing the sequence is the push forward. Brian Fletcher, U.S. Principal Deputy Solicitor General, questioned by Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett, the attorney for gun store owner Michael Cargill, who brought this case Garland v. Cargill was Jonathan Mitchell. Here's part of the questioning from Justice Katanji Brown Jackson about the intent of the machine gun law. I understood this to be a classification statute in the sense that Congress is trying to identify and classify certain weapons. So if you're right, Mm -hmm. I want to understand why that matters. Why does it matter for the purpose of this statute that we have backwards pressure um, in the ordinary case of a machine gun and forward pressure here um, you, you're saying there's a distinction being drawn. Bump stocks don't fit into this category because of this distinction, and I guess I don't understand why Congress would have prohibited one and not the other. Why, why does it matter? Well, it matters because the statute turns on whether the bump stock-equipped rifle will fire more than one shot automatically by a single function right, of the trigger. Right, but the, so the, the, the statute is in, con- in context. The statute yep. is classifying certain weapons for prohibition. Right. So for it to make sense, we have to understand why this category of weapons are ones that Congress wants to prohibit. And you're suggesting that Congress is prohibiting through this classification weapons in which we hold it backwards and automatic fire happens, but we push it forward and automatic fire happens. Congress says no. There's no automatic fire. I'm sorry, Justice Jackson. There is no automatic fire. Sorry, 800 800 bullets. The the conversation with Justice Kagan suggested that through a bump, bump stock you can achieve the same kinds of result in terms of the amounts of bullets that are being uh, ejected. That is, is that true. Correct? It has okay. a very high rate of fire, but it's not automatic. Right. But fire. what I'm this suggesting is-, is that the category of prohibition is about the high rate of fire as opposed to, you know, the movement of the trigger. And if you're right that it's about the movement of the trigger, I'm just asking why. Why would, why would Congress want to prohibit certain things based on whether the trigger is moving as opposed to certain things that can achieve this you know, lethal kind of spray of bullets. Because the statute was written in 1934, mm. about 100 years before we had bump stocks. So Congress drafted the statute at that time to capture the type of weaponry it wanted to prohibit in 1934. Attorney Jonathan Mitchell questioned by Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. You can find the full oral argument of Garland v. Cargill argued today, runs about an hour and a half 
at our website, cspan.org. Story from Newsmax, President Joe Biden focusing on crime rates in the U.S. as he meets with police chiefs from cities that have seen declines in homicides after sharp spikes during the COVID-19 pandemic, the White House said. The Democratic president due to deliver remarks and meet with top police officials from cities including Chicago, Philadelphia, Miami, Detroit, Buffalo, New York, Milwaukee, Charlotte, North Carolina, and DeKalb County, Georgia. That was from Newsmax. He was part of the event today at the White House. Last year, the United States had one of the lowest rates of all violent crime, of all violent crimes in more than 50 years. Murder, rape, murder, rape, aggravated assault, robbery all dropped sharply, along with burglary, property crime, and theft. And it matters. As president, public safety, public safety and crime reduction is a top priority for my administration and for me. And it has been for a long time back when I was chairman of the Judiciary Committee. You know, uh, since day one, my administration has been working with law enforcement mayors and community leaders to do what we know works to keep people and communities safe. As was referenced during the pandemic, states and cities saw violent crime rising and their budgets were strained as they faced deep cuts in law enforcement and public safety. But we stepped up thanks to my American Rescue Plan, which I might note not a single person on the other team voted for. Uh, We provided $350 billion dollars. $350 billion that was available to deal with these issues. President Biden at the White House meeting with the police chiefs. From roll call, senators zeroed in on chronic staffing problems in the Federal Bureau of Prisons on Wednesday as the head of the agency said the system faces a crisis in recruiting and retaining employees. Longstanding staffing shortages were among the problems cited in a scathing watchdog report this month that found systemic and operational failures contributed to scores of prisoner deaths over the years. That was from Roll Call. The hearing was before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and the Bureau of Prisons Director, Colette Peters, testified. Our employees are our everything, and fully staffed institutions and well-trained employees save lives. Yet it is no secret that our agency is in crisis as it relates to recruitment and retention. We are aggressively recruiting and utilizing incentives to maintain the employees we have. And while our efforts over this past year have gleaned results, we are still faced with an inability to compete with the private sector and other law enforcement agencies. As an example, at a federal prison about an hour outside of Boston, a correctional officer recently quit his job for a better offer with better pay. The better offer, working at the local grocery store. On the law enforcement side, an ad running in the New York City subway is advertising that city correctional officers can make around $130,000 after a few years on the job. While in the same amount of time, our officers, after we've implemented the 35% retention bonus, would be making about $90,000. The story is the same throughout the country. We need more resources to carry out our mission, implement our vision, and reach our goals. Colette Peters is director of the Bureau of Prisons, testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Also there, the Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz. You can find this hearing as well at our video library, cspan.org. Wall Street today, the Dow down 23, NASDAQ down 87, S&P down 8. Last week's 
CPAC, Conservative Political Action Conference in National Harbor, Maryland, came up today during Prime Minister's question time in the British House of Commons in London. Specifically, the speech at CPAC by former Prime Minister Liz Truss of the Conservative Party, in which she blamed the deep state for sabotaging her plans to cut taxes. Here's the exchange between the current Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, Conservative Party, and Keir Starmer of the Labour Party, the main opposition. Mr. Speaker, his predecessor spent last week in America trying to flog her new book. In search of fame and wealth, she's taken to slagging off an under... Uh, They made her Prime Minister, now they can't bear talking about her. In search of fame and wealth, she's taken to slagging off and undermining Britain at every opportunity. She claimed, she claimed that as Prime Minister she was sabotaged by the deep state. She also remained silent as Tommy Robinson, that right-wing thug, was described as a hero. Why is he allowing her to stand as a Tory MP at the next election? Well, Mr Speaker, I don't believe a single member of this House supports Tommy Robinson, Mr Speaker. But, but Mr Speaker, if, if he wants to talk about former leaders and predecessors, the whole, the whole country knows his record because he sat there while anti-Semitism ran rife in this party and not once but twice backed a man who called Hamas friends, Mr Speaker. But to their credit, to their credit, the Shadow Chancellor, the Shadow Home Secretary and indeed the Shadow Foreign Secretary refused to back the former Labour leader. But he didn't because he's spineless, hopeless and utterly shameless. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak questioned by the opposition leader, Labour Party leader Keir Starmer in the British House of Commons in London during Prime Minister's Question Time today. The title of former Prime Minister Liz Truss's book is 10 Years to Save the West, Leading the Revolution Against Globalism, Socialism and the Liberal Establishment. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Subscribe to C-SPAN's free evening newsletter word for word and you'll get the stories making headlines in Washington sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night. 